we are going to continue in this teaching series we've been doing uh, on spiritual warfare and deliverance. And we're in the 300 section. Uh, if you're new with us, the Lord, you know, laid this on my heart. I felt it was kind of a prophetic thing. This really has never really happened to me before, but uh, when it comes to preaching, but I felt like he told me to do a 12-week series on spiritual warfare and deliverance. And there's, it's like kind of 101, 201, 301, 401, different sections, different levels, talking about different things. And so we're in the 300s and uh, we're in the last sermon uh, 303. Uh, and in this section of this series, um, we're talking about um, the enemy's specific tactics and strategies at different levels of society, I guess you could say. Um, and so a few weeks ago, we talked about the devil's tactics and strategies against individuals and what he what he's trying to do, the plans, tactics and strategies he's using to try to come against individual people. Um, I believe it was last weekend we talked about um, the tactics and strategies that he's bringing against churches, uh, groups of God's people, churches. He has specific plans, tactics, and strategies against the church of Jesus Christ because we'll touch on this tonight, but um, the I think I said this last week too, but the church is the only thing standing between him and total world domination. And I know that sounds like a dramatic beginning of a movie type of statement, (laughs) but it's true. It is actually absolutely true. And uh, that's how important it is in our local, that's why the local church is so important. Um, I might get ahead of myself right now, but I'm just going to go with the flow here. Um, The devil is, he's got his minions and he's got his fingers and he's got his people in every, everywhere in the world. In fact, if people don't know Jesus, they're under the control of the devil. And so when people come to know Jesus, a local church sets up shop, so to speak, takes up, you know, a kingdom outpost. We become a stronghold of the kingdom of God and we drive out the kingdom of darkness in that region. And so if the church of Jesus went away or was destroyed in this region, guess who takes back over? Like we are the light and darkness is the absence of light. And so he wants to destroy the church and he hates the church. And so we talked about that last week and how he, uh, the the tactics and strategies he has against the church. Uh, And so today, tonight, we're going to talk about, it's kind of a big topic, the tactics and strategies he has against cultures, the cultural, or you could say societal, or you could say nations. Uh, But even within nations, how many of you know there's different little groups of societies? I heard somebody say, uh, growing up, we learned in school, America is a melting pot. And I heard somebody say recently, I forget where I heard this, America is not a melting pot, it's a stew pot. Like all these societies, all these people from different backgrounds came into America, and we didn't melt together. We're not one uniform country. We have all these little societies, little groups of different kinds of people within America. And so stew pot, you guys know what I'm saying? So there's some potatoes, and there's some carrots, and there's some roast beef maybe. Okay, whatever. Anyways, America's a stew pot, right? So there's even different cultures. You know, I, uh, I-68 Ministries... Uh, Dallas Barber, one of our elders, that's his ministry that he leads. And they went out to an Indian reservation a few weeks ago to do a, did you know Indian reservations are like their own sovereign nations in America? You want to talk about a different society uh, within America. And so all I'm saying is 
the devil has cultural strategies and it can apply to societies or it can apply to whole nations. Some nations are very uniform and the kind of the whole nation is kind of the same culture. But some nations like America are so big and diverse, there's different cultures. So anyways, he's got cultural strategies. Why are we talking about this? And I'm going to briefly, briefly uh, recap why we're talking about this. Second Corinthians 2.11 Uh, The Apostle Paul is talking about, we don't want Satan to outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. He's saying we... If we are unaware of his schemes, something's wrong. He probably is outwitting us if we're not aware of what he's doing. We need to learn to discern. The Holy Spirit gave the gift of discerning of spirits to help us know what is the Lord and what is Satan. Man, if we need to know what is the Lord and what is Satan, then how good is he? at counterfeiting what God does, at deceiving us and pulling us into his strategies and making us think that we're doing the will of God when actually we're doing what he wants. I mean, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the gift of discerning of spirits and we need the word of God. And we're gonna go through the word of God and show us what his strategies are tonight against culture. So, but the the Greek word here for schemes in that passage is noema, which means evil purpose. So it's like the end goal. What's his end goal, right? Ephesians 6.11 says, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Same word in English, different word in Greek. This word in Greek is methodia, which sounds very similar and is related to our English word method. And so these are the specific method strategies or tactics. It means cunning arts, deceits, tricks, or crafts that he's using. So these are the specific methods, tactics, and strategies that he's using to accomplish his noema in purpose or goal. And so at each level, we're talking about, uh, so the individual, the, the church strategies, and now tonight, the cultural strategies he has. We're talking about, I'm going to talk about the end goal he has against nations or against cultures. And then I'm going to talk about the strategies he uses to accomplish that end goal. And then we've been talking about our strategia, which is the weapons of our warfare that God's given us to come against his strategies, okay? And so that's 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. Though, though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And I love the King James Version of verse 4, the weapons of our warfare, Okay? It's the Greek word strategia, the strategies and the weapons God's given us to come against these specific tactics and strategies of the devil. So that's what we're talking about in this section of this series. And I want to talk tonight about the cultural tactics and strategies of the devil uh, that he has against, you know, really whole cultures and nations. Um, and I've got two, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it this way. He's got two main noemas or end in, in, in goals that are evil purposes. It's to control whole cultures, governments, societies, and to defile. To defile. Defile means steep in sin and obviously separate from God. But defilement has, is like you're so separated from God, it's, it's extremely difficult to, to get free of the sin and get free of the devil and find your way back to God or to believe the gospel. It makes it harder. The more defiled you are, the harder it is for you to believe the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so we're going to talk about these two end goals. And for each one, I'm going to talk about the strategies he, he is working currently in the world. And scripture talks about this stuff and enlightens us so that we should be aware of these things, especially in our day and age, especially in our generation with what's going on in the earth today. So number one, let's talk about his end goal to control cultures, or you could say control governments or control nations. Revelation 12, I'm going to read verse 12 and verse 17. It says, therefore rejoice you heavens and all you who dwell in them. And he's talking about because Satan's been cast down to the earth. Yay, he's out of heaven now. Awesome. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. That was written 2,000 years ago, approximately. He's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Jumping down to verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman, which is, you know, it's the church really, or the people of God, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's command and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. So we've touched on this verse before, he wants to destroy people. He wants to drag as many people to hell as he can. That He knows that he can't hurt God, so he wants to hurt God's heart by, by deceiving people to hating God and, and just pulling people away from God and destroying what God loves. God says in his word that he wants the fullness of his inheritance. The, did you know the fullness of our inheritance is God himself? But God's inheritance is us. So God's like, I want the fullness of my inheritance, which means I want all of my people in heaven with me. That's God's heart. Uh, But as we talked about in the first section, free will is involved. You have a choice, okay? And so um, God is working and moving to bring people to faith, to trust him so that we don't fall away. But of course, the devil is working for the opposite. So the devil knows how it all ends. And he wants to defile and destroy as many as people as possible. But he's also smart. He's very smart. And he knows that if he can have power and control, not just over individuals, but over nations and cultures, he can create cultures of defilement that destroy not just individuals, that destroys multitudes of people. And if he maintains power, and control over those cultures, he can destroy multitudes, generation after generation after generation after generation. And you actually see this in some countries on the earth that are steeped in demonic control, and you just, the gospel is very difficult to infiltrate and grow there, and generation after generation, they're steeped in evil and witchcraft, and just, the country is just ruined, and and it's like, why is it so hard, and it's because the devil has his power and control, not just over individuals, but over the nation, and he's created a culture of defilement in that nation. He wants control. First John 5, 19. We know we're children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. How many of you know this is going to, I've said this before, this will help you understand God uh, and, and how he works with you. Love and control are opposites. How many of you know that? First Corinthians 13, when it lists love is patient, love is kind, find the place where it says love controls you. It doesn't. And so God doesn't control, God is love. But man, the devil, oh, he, he wants to control. 
In fact, the essence of witchcraft is manipulation and control. That's really the essence of it. And so he wants this control. How does he get or maintain the control? What are his tactics? What are his strategies? Well, Psalm 1, I believe it's 115. uh, The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he's given to mankind. This is the realm of man, right? To get power and control over man, he has to get our agreement. And to get it over nations and cultures, he's, he gets human leaders, some who are, whew, how deep are we going to go tonight, Lord? Some who are explicit occult people. The occult is working at the highest levels of human government, explicit occult, like doing seances, killing, I would say killing goats, but they're killing people is what they're doing. And, and use, I'm not going to get into what they do, but anyways... That is a thing. The occult, literal cult, literal devil has people at the highest places in government. Um, I don't know if I'll get too deep into that tonight, but if you want more info on that, email me. (laughs) Okay? I have credible sources. Uh, That's not just statements I'm making. These aren't conspiracy theories. Um, Yeah, that's all I'll say about that for now. But he's also working through governments and human leaders who they have no idea that the devil's using them for his tactics. They're just lost people who are doing what they want to do. And they, you know, they give in to the bribery and the power and the control and whatever he's doing in the earth. And they don't know that they're pawns of Satan. And it's both. He's got both going on. But he's working through people to get control. Yeah, I'm going to touch, I'm going to talk about this a little bit. I had a whole lot of notes on this, and this is really a whole other sermon. Oh, how much am I going to talk about this, God? Um, I believe the devil likes a certain type of government. And it is big government, what we would call in our culture big government, You know, the government's controlling a lot of things in people's lives. The devil likes that, right? But it's big government that is controlled by a very small number of people. Because if the devil can control those very small number of people that have a whole lot of power, well, then he can control everything, right? He can control the whole nation. Um, And so, example, communism, especially communism, if you think, or, or, Total uh, totalitarian dictatorships, uh, if you think of Hitler, if you think of Stalin, if you think of the communist regimes of that era all the way up until the 80s, the 90s, they were just flat out satanic. Um, read the book Tortured for Christ, which is the guy that ended up starting Voice of the Martyrs, and you will get a picture into how demonically evil the mindsets of those communist regimes were. I mean, part of the communist mindset was, uh, let's take God out, like total and complete, take God out of the picture, uh, atheism, right? And it's the opiate of the people. Oh, God's not real, and you're soothing yourselves, and the government is going to help you, right? We're your friend, you know? And trust us, and you know, it's all going to be equal. Communism doesn't work. Socialism is its nicer counterpart that that's how it always starts you know hey wouldn't it be great 
if we all got along, we all had the same, and we were all happy, and everything was equal and fair, right? Wouldn't that be great? Doesn't that sound good? It sounds like utopian, right? Powerful people push that, then they get in power, and they promise that, but just study every communist regime that has done that, and just look at the results, and you will find I mean, the 20th century was the bloodiest century, and it was all communism, and we're talking tens and tens, if not hundreds of millions of people killed, genocided, starved to death, horrific. I'll briefly say this. I don't want to get into it too much, but if you think about what system of government God likes, have you ever thought about that? Here's what, I had this, I'll call it an epiphany. Maybe it was a revelation from the Lord a few years ago. We have a case study in scripture. God set up a government, the nation of Israel. And when you look at the nation of Israel and what it was like, I think it was very similar to what we would call in our culture today, a democratic republic with a capitalistic free uh, economy. Why do I say that? The way God set up the nation of Israel was they did not have a king. In fact, in, I believe it's second Samuel or maybe first Samuel, when they're, when they say they want a king and Samuel's a prophet who's helping guide the nation. And they say, we want a king like the other nations. And he's grieved and, and he goes to God and God goes, it's not you. They're rejecting as king. They're rejecting me as their king. But how did God set it up? He gave them good moral laws, the Ten Commandments, right? This is how I want you to live. If you read the Leviticus, he gives them laws for every part of their society. He gives them consequences for every part of their society. He even gets in how to tax. And man, it was a 10% flat tax. Do you, that was the, you guys realize the tithe, we're so used to religious culture, tithe was their tax. And it was just 10%. Can you imagine? They give that to the priests and Levites. These weren't just religious leaders. These were government leaders. These were the judges. Whenever there was a case that was hard to decide, like somebody committed a crime, the, the priests and Levites knew the law, which was the literal word of God then, and they would go, uh, it says, a thorough investigation must be conducted. There must be at least two or three witnesses. And the priest would be the judge that would determine what happened here and then execute the consequences and make a decision. That's like a fair trial. You know what I'm saying? If they had a tough uh, case, it was passed up to the national court, which became known as the Sanhedrin. So they had this system of judges and, and different levels. And if harder cases would get passed up and it would be judged by many judges, many people, not just one king in power telling people what to do. And then you look at their economy. It's free. I mean, study what the Lord says about debt. Like, yeah, you can do it, but don't get too far in debt. In fact, every seven years, you need to cancel the debts. And every 50 years, you need to totally cancel the debts. God gave private property. Whoo, God gave private property to every individual family in Israel. And he said, if they got so poor or destitute that they had to give that up, then 
you know, every seven years or definitely at the Jubilee, they had to give it back to that family. So think about this. The Sanhedrin wasn't owning all the land and renting it to the people. That's where communists want to go, by the way. People owned their own land. People could choose what they wanted to do in life for a job and they could be as successful, as rich as they, as they, their hard work would allow them to be in God's economy. Are you guys tracking with me? Why is this important, Pastor Aaron? Why are you preaching about government? Why, do, why is it important to think about these things and the case study that we have in scripture and compare it to our day and age? How many of you know that there is, I'll say, I, I know these are buzzwords, but I'll explain it from scripture in a minute. There's a globalist agenda to take over the world and to rule the world. The World Economic Forum is part of it. The, wor- the, people's, the, the world's most rich, powerful people sit on this economic forum which has its fingers in all the world governments to influence world governments. And listen, what I'm about to say to you is no secret. This is not conspiracy theory. You can go to their website and read about it. But they have this video, their vision, World Economic Forum. You know, by the, by the year 2030, you will own nothing and you'll be happy. Ooh, utopia. And then, you know, there's pictures of technology and we all have abundant. And it's like, oh, that's great. Who owns it? We'll all own nothing, but we'll be happy. Who owns it? Because whoever owns it controls it. And the moment they're not happy with you, they can ruin your life. Look at China and the CCP. I'm not talking racism, Chinese people. I'm talking about the Chinese Communist Party and how they rule that nation. It is scary. If you want to know what government control and propaganda looks like, go watch the documentary, One Child Nation, about the, that rule they had for a long time in China. You can only have one child. It's horrific. You know, China, China doesn't care about people's personal privacy. So they have cameras set up everywhere now, facial recognition software. They're tracking everybody. You know, in China, they already have a social credit system. And for example, if you are a Christian and you're caught going to church, a church that the government does not approve of because the government approved churches edit the Bible to where it's not true Christianity. They edit. It's like, oh, don't worship Jesus. Worship the CCP. If you go to a Bible-believing church in China, it is looked down upon. Your social credit gets tacked, which guess what that means? You can't go to certain stores. You can't buy certain things. You might lose your job. Do you understand what that's sounding like, church? Do Do you know where I'm about to go with scripture? How many of you know that's one world system? That's where they're going. That's the pattern. Technology is getting to a scary place where they can control everything. So here's why I'm saying this. It's not fear-mongering. It's so we can be awake and alert, church. In these days, the Bible is literally true. Read the book of Revelation. Here's the enemy's game plan. He's bringing about one world leader. 
the Antichrist, not spirit of Antichrist, which is anything that's against Jesus, right? The Antichrist, one world leader that the devil will give total power and control to, his power even, because that guy is perfectly possessed, doing what the devil wants, and he will rule the world. And, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read it all, but read Revelation, read chapter 13 and the context. But what does it talk about? The mark of the what? The beast. And what does this mark do? It allows you to buy and sell. And if you don't get the mark of the beast, you cannot buy and sell. What does that sound like? Extreme control and manipulation. And the Lord says in his word, if you get the mark, you ain't going to heaven. Which means this, and we need to pay attention, and we need to be discerning, especially in the generation we live in. I'm telling you this tonight, church. The mark of the beast will require you to do something that will go against the word of God. I don't know what that will be. But to get the mark of the beast, whatever that looks like, it will require you to do something that goes against the word of God. Because your disobedience to God is what will cause you to not be saved in that generation. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a government system of control that says buy into this and there's aspects about it that go against the word of God and therefore you're choosing to trust in human leaders and governments rather than the Lord Jesus. And listen, here's kind of the scary part. That is going to happen no matter what. At some point. I heard one theologian that says the devil's trying to orchestrate this in every generation and, it, and however active the church is in prayer and faithfulness to Jesus depends on whether it happens in their generation or their generation experiences revival and it just puts it off for a later generation. But how many of you know we're getting down to the last days of the last days? It's very near. It's right at the door. The birth pains are increasing. Matthew 24, all the signs that Jesus said, when you see all these happening and the connotation is in one generation, you see all these signs happening. It's very near right at the door. How many of you know those are birth pains? And the 20th century, study natural disasters in the 20th century. Study pestilences in the 20th century. Study all the other things Jesus mentions. In the tw starting in the 20th century, the 1900s, all of them start going through the roof. And their frequency and the level of damage done. What does that mean? When a woman's in labor, she goes into contractions, but they're 10, 20 minutes apart, and they're just, they don't hurt that bad. It's like, ooh, ooh, I think that's a, that's a contraction there. As she gets closer to the birth, they get closer together, two minutes apart now, and they are severe and they hurt. So they increase in frequency and intensity and pain. Jesus said in Matthew 24, these are the signs, right? And he lists natural disasters, pestilences. The church will be hated in all nations on account of me, which we're starting to see now, even in free nations like America. If you're a Christian and you preach the Bible, you're a bigot, you're a racist, you're horrific, you're not tolerant, you're not loving. Do you see the signs coming together to converge? Globus agendas, one world governments converging. We're seeing the beginnings of it. What am I saying? I'm saying we're getting near. The birth pains are increasing. 
we'd better be focused on Jesus more than ever. The Bible says he wants control and domination and he's going to get it at some point. And a great persecution is coming. You don't buy into Mark of the Beast, man, you're getting severe persecution or killed. Do you love Jesus that much? Didn't mean to go that far into it, but that's pretty much everything I had down. So he wants control. And the Bible says he will get it at some point. But those who remain faithful to Jesus will not buy into his system. They will not. And I'll, again, I'll use the buzzword in our culture. They will not comply. So that's all coming. He's working it through governments. He's working it through laws. He's working it through arts, culture, to create mindsets. Some of it is laws forcing us to do things we don't want to do that will eventually lead to to his domination. Some of it is an arts culture that defiles people and desensitizes people, which we're going to talk about in a minute, to get us to the point where we we agree with him and we it forms our beliefs to think this isn't so bad. And you know what God says? It, it probably doesn't mean it that extreme for our generation to where we live in defilement and we don't even know it. So he's working at all these different levels. So what is our strategy of the weapons of our warfare to come against his controlling power over governments and uh, leaders, laws and societies and and the arts and so on and so forth. Um, I think the number one weapon God's given us is prayer. And 1 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul says, First of all, I ask that prayers and intercession be made with thanksgiving. For who? He says, first, for kings and all those in authority. Why? So we can live peaceful, quiet lives. And that pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He's saying when there's good kings in power who are just trying to be public servants and letting people live their lives in freedom... It allows for the gospel to spread. And I'll say it this way. People within that culture can come to faith easier. Why? If there is a total controlling government or society, if you think of total communism where it's atheistic and it's illegal to go to church and will kill you if you do or arrest you. If you think of a total Islamic extremist society, there's whole nations like this, by the way. And I personally know someone who grew up in this, um, but where Christianity is, is kind of outlawed, like you'll be persecuted if you're a Christian. Think about how difficult it might be for someone in America to come to faith in Jesus versus a country like that. This is why this is important. This is why governments are important. This is why laws are important. This is why how you vote is important. This is why caring about this stuff is important. Why? In America, we're pretty free. I mean, this country has a lot of issues and it's worse than ever, but it's still one of the best countries on earth, right? So if someone's a sinner... And they come to church, hear a message, you need to repent, give your life to Christ. What do they have to do? They have to really battle their own desires, their own sin, 
and place their faith in Jesus and just resist the devil for themselves, right? And, and listen, some families may look down on it, but most people in America, okay, you want to be a Christian? That's fine, whatever. Don't judge me, you know, and I won't judge you. But man, in an extreme communistic government, an extreme Islam government system, to become a believer, it's not just, oh, I need to deny my sin and deny myself. I have to, I have to fight against the entire government. Extreme Islamic, I have a, a friend that this happened to him. He grew up extreme Islam. He hated Christians. He, he would go, there was, this was recent, another in Pakistan, you know, group of extremists like terrorizing Christians. And he used to do that. And then he got saved. He came to know Christ. And his family kicked him out. He was homeless for eight years. He couldn't live with his family. You know why? Because he feared some of his siblings would have killed him. Honor killing. So in a culture like that, how difficult is it to come to faith in Christ? You don't have to just think about, oh, do I want to change my life or not? Am I going to be killed by my family or not? Am I going to be arrested by the government and destroyed or not for this? Count the cost. Now, the truth is, even in a culture where it's easy, like America, we still need to be willing to go to that degree. You know, if somebody holds a gun to our head or puts us in that situation, we need to count the cost and be willing to lay down for Jesus. I'm just saying, though, it's harder for people to come to faith when the devil has that extreme of control and that threat over a society. So... We need to pray. We need to pray for kings and all those in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. And then I wrote down number two. In this country, we do have a say. We get to vote. So we need to vote, right? We need to vote morals. We need to vote for godly leaders to get into office who can institute godly laws. And there's a whole like progressive Christians are like, oh, that's not the kingdom of God. We shouldn't care about that. If we pull out, I mean, do you see how dark it is already? If we pull out completely of government, they're going to be arresting your pastor here in a few, like a decade or so, if we pull out. Do you understand that? That if I preach on sexual morality, it will be considered hate speech and I'll get arrested? Do you understand that's where that's trending? Does this stuff matter? And I'm, listen, we shouldn't hate people that disagree with us, but we live in a country where we have a say, and we can vote, and we can pray, and we can see God get people in office who will institute godly laws, I've heard some Christians say, well, it's America, so like, I mean, I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to force my Christianity on someone. Here's what the Bible says. Plan on sharing this verse later, but I'm going to share it now. Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. Do you care about people who don't believe in Jesus? If sin and sinful laws and a sinful culture will condemn them and make it harder and defile them more, make it harder for them to come to faith in Jesus, do you care about that? I think it's really important. And so, and I'll just say, some of you may be called to uh, public governance. And we need to pray that more people are called to public governance. 
in our country if we care about our country. Um, and hope, if I get able to get there tonight, that'll make a lot more sense too. Sin condemns any people. When there are sin and systems of defilement, both the enemy will destroy that culture, but then God will judge that culture and let it happen without repentance and without revival. And that we see that all throughout scripture, and that's New Testament too, by the way. So, if we care about these things, um, we should do our civic duties as well. And then number three, I'll just say this. Do not comply. This is a strategy. Uh, this is a weapon of warfare. This is a strategia. Do not comply with government laws that cause you to violate your conscience or disobey God. Period. Period. You know the whole uh, Mark of the Beast and all that that I just talked about. It says in Revelation there's going to be a great deception so that even the elect would be deceived if that were possible. A great deception. God's going to give the world over to a great deception because the world doesn't want him. And that's Romans 1. One of the scariest forms of God's judgment is he gives us, he gives us what we want. And what we want is not him. That's scary. And he'll give us over to it. There's a great deception that comes with this. That if you're not pursuing Jesus, God will give you over to. And you, and so this lukewarm Christianity that goes, well, I know that's probably not right. You know, I know that that kind of violates what I think we should do. But the government's asking us, so let's just do it and be nice and be a good citizen. That's the type of thinking that will lead you to get the mark of the beast, whatever the mark of the beast is. And you'll be lulled to sleep. You'll get that mark. And be like, oh, I'm really like loving everyone by getting the mark. You know, I'm doing my civic duty. So wake up. Do not comply with government laws that cause you to violate your conscience or go against God's word. All right. And even if it gets to a point of, well, I could be arrested if I do that. Uh-huh. Yes. Correct. If it ever gets to a point, I told my wife, maybe this is a bit feisty, but I told my wife one time, if they ever make hate speech just preaching the Bible, you, do you know what my first sermon's going to be that next weekend? Is on that subject. She's like, Aaron, you have a family. You can't do that. You know, <laughs> that's probably a bit feisty. I can't say that. I'll pray about it and the Lord will lead me what to preach on. But It's important. It's important. But I will say, I do believe that, well, let me finish that thought. I could be arrested though. Do you realize the early church did not comply with the government? Do you realize that? The government commanded them, don't speak or teach in this name or we'll arrest you and we might kill you. And the Lord, do you know what the Lord did when he set them out of prison? Go right back into the temple where that governing body works. <laughs> And keep preaching Jesus' name. <laughs> he set him out of prison and said, go right back to the temple and preach to the guys that just commanded you not to. The law. Go, go to where that, the courthouse where that judge that just commanded you <laughs> and go preach again. In Acts 4, that famous passage, Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. I cannot help living for the gospel. I cannot help doing what God says to do. 
even if it costs me, even if my whole society, my whole culture, my whole government is against me. I can't help it. I do want to say this, and I believe this is true. I do not believe Christians should ever use physical violence or, or start physical rebellions. I believe that with all my heart. That is not the way of Jesus. You don't see the apostles rebelling with swords and knives and, if they had guns, guns to set up their own country. You just don't see that. You see them preach Jesus, and if that gets us killed, come and kill us. Turn the other cheek. Go ahead. Do, do to me what you got to do, but I'm going to preach Jesus. And so before we get, gosh, before we get too into the far right Christian nationalism, right? Some of y'all, you like this, what I'm preaching tonight. You like it a little too much, all right? Because how many of you know both political parties are corrupt? And the far right, they want to use your Christianity to manipulate you so they can be in power. That's what they want. And the far left is just explicitly partnering with evil, okay? So we have to be discerning. And we can't just be like, oh, you can, I'm a Christian, but you can get my gun from me when you pry it from my cold dead fingers. Oh, wow, do you think that's what Jesus would say? No, that's horrific. Good night. So we should never use physical violence. We should never institute rebellions. The number one thing we can do is to pray. And our main, and yes, voting's important. Like I said, all that stuff's important. But our main focus should be bringing the kingdom of God through our involvement with our local church and our, the, help, the helps work we do in our local communities. That's the main thing. And, and loving your family well and training up children who don't buy into this cultural system. That's the main thing. Man, if you're out there, you think your main job is complaining on Facebook and lobbying so that the NRA, so that the government doesn't take your guns, you have missed, you're not reading, you're listening to too much Fox News and you're not reading your Bible enough. Ooh, just got quiet in here. Pastor, I like Fox News. There are Christians on there. I don't care. (laughs) Read your Bible. (laughs) Ugh. Ugh, I can't, I can't. I'll just, Fox News is a whole bunch of slander and gossip against the other side. And every now and then they highlight a good story that has Christian values. It, it, it mostly makes me sick to watch. And yes, I can't stand CNN either. And so I'm an equal opportunity offender tonight. Christians need to be focused on the Bible. Christians need to be focused on Jesus. Christians need to be people of prayer and yes, we should care about our government, but man, don't buy into a political spirit. The, the kingdom of God is not going to come through government. So when I say get laws that preserve a nation or righteousness exalts a nation, that's very important, I believe. But the kingdom of God comes through the church. It's a grassroots movement. That's what you need to be focused on primarily. And if you're called to governments, governance, you need to still be rooted in a local church. Hmm. All right, so he wants control. That's how we come against it. Number two, his second goal, evil purpose, is working through, as I said, government, culture, arts, etc., to defile. 
And, and what I mean is create mindsets of defilement. Create beliefs of a whole culture that is other than God. Culture defined as this. Culture can be defined as all the ways of life of a society, including arts, beliefs, and institutions of a population that are passed down from generation to generation. And here's why he's after not only individuals about their beliefs, but whole cultures. Because as people are born, they are majorly influenced and shaped by the culture that they're in. Let me say it this way. You all know. When I've experienced this with my kids. You, your kids, as they're grown up, they're in your house, they're running around, and all of a sudden they say something, they're like, blah, 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 and you're just like, what did you just say? You're like, where'd you learn that? And they heard it on TV, right? They learned it at school from another kid, right? TV, movies, the arts, they heard it in a song. They're influenced, they're shaped by their culture. They watch shows about celebrities and what they believe and what they think, and they're shaped by that. And they notice what our culture rewards and they notice what our culture doesn't like. And it's a natural thing to go, you know, I want to be liked. (laughs) I want to fit in. (laughs) I want to be rewarded by the culture when I grow up. Your children are influenced and shaped by the culture that they're born into. There is a saying in teaching and in Christian discipleship as well, more is caught than taught. How do we as people learn? We are developmental beings. What do I mean by that? When you're born as a baby, you have a full body, but you have not grown and fully developed yet. And, and science says you hit your peak about age 27. That's an early peak, but that's true. It's all downhill. From, I'm just kidding. When you start having overhill parties at 27, I'm like, oh man, that's depressing. <laughs> oh. I lost my train of thought. I'm like, where was I going with that? I don't know. We're developmental beings. Did you know your brain has to develop? Did you know it, we call it in church spiritual formation? G- but grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Growing in maturity. We're developmental beings. So the things we're learning as we grow up develop us. They form us spiritually. We're forming beliefs and thoughts about the world. Which form who we, the essence of who we are as people. Culture that you're born into majorly influences how you develop, how you're spiritually formed. And so one of the jobs of parents, Christian parents, is to assess in the culture what is not of God and to keep your children, keep it from your children and to teach and train up your children in the ways and word of God and make sure they're more formed by that than the culture. Very, 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 very important. And I hear Christian parents say, well, I don't want to shelter my kid because the moment they move out, they won't know what to do. Correct. We don't want to shelter our children, but we do want to protect them. And we should be training them and increasingly giving them exposure to the world and having daily, I said daily, conversations with them about those things so that when they step out on their own, it's a smooth transition and they've been formed by the word of God, by spiritual experiences, the spirit of God, to where their beliefs have been formed, by the time they're 15 or 16, they should be like Daniel, who was about that age, when he could stand against the whole culture of Babylon and say, you know, I think I'm going to fast so that I can stay faithful to God. But we have a culture that treats children like infants until they're in their mid-20s, 
And we have a culture of parenting that abdicates your responsibility to the public school system and you don't have conversations with your kids and you abdicate your responsibility as parents to the local church and you drop them off and you send them to class and you don't how, you don't do what the scriptures say, which is to talk daily when you sit and when you rise and when you're on your way, having co- conversations about the word of God and asking them questions and what do you think and talking to them and praying for them and with them daily. That's your responsibility. And if you're not having those conversations, you're where you as a parent remain silent. You allow the culture to disciple your children. And so, this is our responsibility. More is caught than taught. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, the pattern of this world, the mindsets, the culture of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, good, pleasing, and perfect will. I love the message paraphrase version of this scripture. Listen to what it says. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. That's what culture does. It, it conditions us to fit in without even thinking. We get up, we go to work, we go to school, we come home, we go to practice, we do our homework, we go to bed. We're, we're just fitting into the culture without even thinking. And we need to stop, read the word of God, meditate, spend time with Jesus, consider our ways, scripture says, consider your ways, your habits, your patterns, the way you live. Why do you live the way you live? That gets down into the belief world. What do you believe about the world? If you actually believe what the Bible says, You would be like reading the Bible every day, praying every day, living in the fear of the Lord, asking him what your calling in part is to to stop the kingdom of darkness and to see the kingdom of God prevail on the earth. But so many Christians are asleep and they're paying more attention to the culture. And I've said it before, but the Lord spoke to me a word in 2020, a lifestyle of fasting. And in opulent, affluent culture, you have to live a lifestyle of fasting to stay faithful to God. When I say lifestyle, I don't mean like you're literally not eating food every day. What I mean is you have to choose in and of yourself to limit your exposure to entertainment and and media and all, all the hobbies and all the good things that are fun that you can give yourself to and live your whole life entertaining yourself to death and not doing the will of God. That's what I mean. And that's what the Lord meant by that word. You need to live a lifestyle. You need to really limit how much you engage in fun things, entertainment. You need to make sure you're in the word every day and praying every day and living the will of God. And every person you meet, if they don't know Jesus, they're on their way to hell. And, and, how, and this might be the only time I, they interact with a Christian ever. And how can I influence them for Jesus? Right? That's, that's the Christian mindset, the true Christian mindset. And so how many of you know that's not our culture, right? Because our culture is not Christian. Our culture claims to be Christian, but it's not. Our, our, our culture is Christian idolatry. It's golden calf Christianity. You know, when you have The View and, and other TV shows like that and celebrities and even CNN anchors saying things like, and I literally saw this, I believe it was a CNN anchor saying, well, you know, if Jesus were here today, he would have been the grand marshal at the pride parade. 
And he, he started it with, you know, I might be a backslidden Baptist, but if Jesus were <laughs> and people listen to him and they're like, yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. So you're gonna take the word of a guy who says, I used to be a Baptist, I don't go to church anymore, I don't read the Bible, but I just think if Jesus were here, he'd be the grand marshal of the pride parade because he loves people. We all know God loves people and Jesus loves people. Wow. And you have pastors who eat, sleep, and breathe the Bible and get up, they're, they're experts, they're authorities on the Bible, and they get up and go, this is what God says. And people are like, man, whatever. I believe that CNN anchor. Come on. Whew. Whew. I'm just complaining now, sorry. <laughs> Forgive me, Lord. The enemy wants to defile whole cultures, create mindsets that aren't of God. How does he do that? Romans chapter one. And it starts with this. I'm going to just, I was going to read the whole chapter for the sake of time. I'm going to, Romans chapter one describes the gradual degradation and defilement, not of a, of a person, but a whole society, a whole culture. In fact, it's really talking about the whole of humanity. And you see the same pattern since Adam and Eve repeating itself over and over and over. And it says, I'll just read it. (laughs) The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So people are without excuse. For although they knew God, here's a key verse, they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Here's a key verse. And exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God, scary form of his judgment, gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, that's interesting, for the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and here's the key verse I wanna show you, and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who's forever praised, amen. The beginning of his strategy is don't worship God, worship yourself. Don't worship God, worship created things. You are God, worship the flesh, worship your pleasures, worship what you think over what God thinks. Don't humble yourself and worship God. That's the beginning of the degradation or defilement of a whole culture, okay? So somewhere around the 17, 1800s, 1700s, I guess, maybe 1600s, some, the enlightenment, the uh, rationalism in human thinking, um, became prevalent in Europe, and now we live in a whole culture that is influenced by that. So, and what I'm saying is atheism and secular humanism. So, Darwinism uh, is a huge part of this, okay? Oh, science thinks that they've figured out where we came from. They haven't figured anything out. And, and check me on this, and you can email me if you think I'm wrong. There's no such thing as macroevolution, meaning kind, one kind of animal turning into a whole another kind of animal, not in the fossil record, nowhere. Microevolution, that's just small changes over time. We see that in dog breeding. Yeah, okay, microevolution. So when science says evolution's a proven fact, yeah, microevolution, but whole species changing? No, we've never seen that. 
It's not in the fossil record. These are theories, right? Are you, right? Good night, church. Right? Am I at a, a, an unbelieving Darwinistic convention right now? Why is it so quiet in here? Right? Oh, thank God. I feel so much more secure now. Whatever, man. I won't let your unbelief overcome my belief. Woo. That's a Todd White quote. He said that about preaching. Because sometimes you can feel unbelief in the room and it messes with you. But anyways. So, our whole culture is trained in uh, atheism. And there's a pride to it in the science community. Well, intelligent design can't be real because that's just silly. How about we look at the evidence? And I've said this before, there's whole books about it. Uh, Lee Strobel, Case for Faith, is a great book about the evidence for science, actually scientific evidence for the existence of God. Um, And there are many people with doctorate degrees, scientists, who would argue there's more evidence for the existence of God and intelligent design, by the way. Francis Collins, as one example, who mapped the human genome or or led the team that did and became a Christian out of it because he's like, this is a language. And this is DNA is like a language and it's a code book. And somebody had to make it. It didn't just fall into, you know, anyways. A whole lot of examples of that. But there's a prideful shame of the wise, a peer pressure to just, well, if there's an arrogance, well, if you're educated, you know that God's not real and science is truth. Science just merely explains how God does, how God created stuff. So science, don't believe the lie that science and faith are mutually exclusive. When we have scientists, scientific discoveries, we go, oh, that's how God did it. That's how it works. Cool. Moving on. So, he gives them over to a depraved mind because they've, they've, they've chosen to worship created things rather than God. That's atheism, secular humanism mindsets. And listen to this. Because of this, God gives them over to shameful lusts. And it goes on to talk about a lot of sexual immorality. And then once the culture is steeped in sexual morality, which is defilement, by the way, then he gives them over to total depraved minds to do what ought not should be. Uh, what should ought not be done. And that's what we're seeing in our culture today. And so I'm going to say this. To defile culture, one of the enemy's main tactics is pornography. And I'll just say creating beliefs in the culture that def- that cause us to devalue God's design in gender and marriage. So when you come up against beliefs in the culture or institutions in the culture that devalue marriage between a man and a woman and how important that is, you're coming up against demonic strategies, whether the person or the institution instituting them realize that's what they are. That is what they are. Sexual immorality is the number one thing that under, under, undercuts the value of marriage in a society. The enemy hates marriage and he hates godly sexuality. Why? Because that is the foundation of the society. 
Stable, flourishing societies are built on stable nuclear family units, communities made up of husbands and wives. And there is a whole lot of societal, sociological studies and research that prove that is the case. So the devil knows if I can break down the family unit, I can break down the community and I can break down the society. And if he can create a mindset in a society where everybody thinks it's fine, then he gets the whole culture to devalue marriage and engage in sexual morality, which will defile the culture. And, and it, we actually, there are, there are observable societal problems from this, that whether you believe in God or not, it's just truth. So what do, I, what do I mean by that? Most problems in our society, I did a series a few years ago called Family Strong. If you go Google or YouTube, Family Strong, uh, Free People Church, it'll come up. And I did a whole, whole sermons on this. I did a, a two-part series in 2020 called, um, oh gosh, Diagnosis of Cultural Decline. Why is America declining? And there's two messages on that. And so, so go listen to those. Most of the problems in society are symptoms of family problems. For example, 93% or I'm sorry, 80% of prison inmates in America are men from fatherless homes. 90% of runaway children fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts, fatherless homes. 61, 63% of juvenile suicides are committed by kids who come from fatherless homes. Are you seeing what I'm saying? A breakdown of the family. You start seeing massive societal problems and consequences, whether you believe in God or not. This is just true. God created family to be the foundation of society. So what's going to undercut family? The devil thinks. I don't know, how about our strongest drive other than hunger than thirst? Worship your sexuality and your sex drive more than you care about how God says to do things. And the Bible says those who sin sexually, they don't just sin against God. It's unlike any other sin. You sin against yourself. You defile yourself. And you want to talk about how powerful sexuality is and how dangerous it is when it's misused or abused. Talk to any counselor or psychologist about sexual abuse victims, rape or children or whatever. And the problems that creates in a human psyche and the problems it creates in society. The number one reason for divorce is infidelity, sexual immorality. Pornography. There's a correlation to people who use pornography and infidelity. Pornography destroys intimacy between men and wife. It makes it hard for them to be intimate together. And then they start to look elsewhere. How about this? And here's what I'm saying. In the 1960s, there was a strategy of the devil to destroy American culture, Judeo-Christian values. And there were, it was a multiplicity of, of fronts, but they were all happening at the same time. So uh, in the 50s and 60s, you had pornography coming onto the scene. You also had birth control coming onto the scene, removing the consequences of 
bearing children from sexuality. You have birth control. You have abortion being legalized. This is why you saw the 60s and 70s like free love movement. History calls it a sexual revolution. And this went over a few decades, which resulted in the years I was growing up. Now, uh, people being homosexual, which God lists in in, in, uh, Romans 1, if the culture is getting to a mindset where you're exchanging natural relations for unnatural, that's a warning sign the culture is being degraded. And I'm about to show you some societal research of this, by the way, that proves what the Bible says. But that was the, then that's, you know, about 30 years later in the 90s and up until now. And now we're entering a new phase where all bets are off because our minds are being degraded. And you have people, we have transgenderism. I don't need to go into that. And how the same culture that's saying trust the science with vaccines is saying we can't say what a woman is. Right? Right. Do you guys see the double standard and the double-mindedness there? It doesn't make any sense because it's not of God. And our God is a God of order and he's a God of truth. So now we're getting to that place. Now we're getting to a place where the LGBT community is having to wrestle with pedophiles who say, well, I'm minor attracted. I'm just like you. I want in. I want to be accepted. And they're like, hold up a second. Hold up. No, no, no. We ain't doing that. So when you remove God from defining morality, how do you define it? That's what they're arguing over. And the truth is, when you remove God, you can't define it. But this is the point we're at. And I'm telling you, we we can vote and we can do our civic duty, but only the gospel will, will change it. Only revival will change this at this point. We need revival. We need Jesus. We need people... Christians being passionate about Jesus and prayer and evangelism and being involved in their local church and seeing their local church be healthy and vibrant and reaching the community and worshiping Jesus. That is what is needed in this country. So J.D. Unwin uh, was an Oxford scholar years ago. He wrote a 600-page book called Sex and Culture, and he summarized a lifetime, re- re- a lifetime of research about the observable link between a culture's sexual morality and what he calls the flourishing of that society. He defines flourishing as prosperity in all areas of architecture, art, engineering, literature, agriculture, business, education, so on. He studied data from 86 societies and civilizations down through the centuries and found the same exact pattern at work. Those who had the highest levels of human flourishing in all areas were those that had the strictest moral view of sexuality, namely remaining a virgin until married to one person of the opposite sex and and staying married until death. And so divorce was looked down upon. In other words, Judeo-Christian sexual morality, right? What he found was there is a direct correlation between cultures that claimed a sexual freedom to be promiscuous, polygamous, uh, not honoring traditional marriage, and the decline and ultimate demise of that culture almost always three generations later, and he defined a generation as 33 years. And this is what he said. The first generation would veer into sexual freedom having experience of having your cake and eating it too, because the greater culture was still governed by the moral views, which provided a lot of stability to that culture. So they had this sense that, hey, we're prosperous, successful, and and we can do whatever we want. We're free. 
but it was deceptive because the effects of these mindsets on a whole society take time to be seen. The decline starts in the second generation, about 33 years later, right? From the deviation of sexual chastity, and by the third, he said, in every time, the culture declines to the point that it is either destroyed from within or taken over by another society, uh, culture, or country that is stronger than that culture. What he could not figure out was why there was that correlation. Interestingly, there's an incredible article summarizing all of this. A guy named Kirk Durston highlights the research of Mary Eberstadt, who's a successful uh, research author of nonfiction, whose work's been featured in Time, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, all that. And she talks about the reason for the correlation that Unwin saw with our sexual morality views and our, the decline of our culture. And this is the Kirk Durson guy quote, talking about her research. He said, her research, recent research into mass killings, the substantial rise in mental health issues, including depression, the explosion of identity politics, is a primal scream due to the loss of identity that was once provided by growing up in a long-term immediate family with siblings and a sizable group of cousins, aunts, and uncles, all of which provide identity essential for well-being. Eberstadt shows and documents from various studies that this decimation of the family was a direct consequence of the sexual revolution at the end of the 20th century. Her research indicates that increased sexual freedom led to the decimation of the family, which resulted in the loss of family identity, which produced Eberstadt's primal screams, quote unquote, primal screams, a massive increase in mental health issues, mass killings, and the rise of extreme identity groups at war with each other, all symptoms of a society rapid, rapidly spiraling into collapse. Now, if that doesn't describe America, I don't know what does. So it started in the 60s. A generation 30 years later is the 90s. A generation 30 years later is now. And no wonder we're seeing the culture just, just, just careening to degradation at the levels we're seeing it. And this research of J.D. Unwin is just secular. Just I'm just observing. It's not... This isn't biased stuff. He's just saying this is what happens. And yet in God's word, Romans 1 describes the same exact thing. To put it simply, where the family breaks down, society breaks down, where marriage breaks down, the family breaks down, and sexual immorality breaks down the concept of marriage. So therefore, you could say engaging in any form of sexual immorality is contributing to or the beginning of of the demise of that society and that culture. And that's the devil's plan, and he knows what he's doing, and he's really good at what he does. So what are the weapons of our warfare against this strategy? Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Why will God judge these people? Because he knows how it destroys families and whole cultures and leads people to hell. It's really, really important. So marriage being honored by all, by all, even people who don't get married, 
And we're talking about God's definition of marriage, which is in Matthew 19, which Jesus said, have you not read that in the beginning, Jesus's definition of marriage, in the beginning, God made them male and female. And for this reason, God's design in our gender, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two become one flesh. We need to honor that. And we need to live by that. And when we engage a culture that is a pride culture, when it comes to sexuality, we need to graciously be salt and light to those people. We need to not partner with it. No Christian should be telling their gay friends, happy pride month. That is contributing to their stronghold. You're saying, I'm glad you're in a stronghold. I'm glad you're in something that separates you from Jesus. We, if people ask you what you think, you need to graciously tell them the truth. Graciously tell them the truth. How do you keep the marriage bed pure? No pornography, promiscuity, masturbation, infidelity. Committing pornography, I had a dream a while back. I won't go much into it, but the Lord was showing me pornography is one of the biggest tactics of the devil. And it does so many things. It defiles people. You can get demonic attachments and strongholds just by looking at pornography. It, it, it will ruin your marriage or make it very difficult at the very least. Intimacy between you and your wife. So on and so on and so on. And uh, it's just really, really bad. As a Christian, you can justify it. You can think, I'm not doing something that bad. Every time you look at that or click on that or whatever, you're mon- they're monetized. You're not paying for it. There's a lot of free porn out there. You don't have to pay for it now, right? But if you click on that, they get ad revenue. You're paying them. You're contributing to the system. Do you understand that? It's really serious to just even look at it on your own heart. But then in culture, you're, you're contributing to the devil's hold on society. Every time you just look. And so if you've sinned sexually or with pornography, whatever, let me just tell you the good news. There's grace, the gospel, but you must repent, confess, admit you were wrong, turn from these sins. God will forgive you. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's such a beautiful verse. If you've, if you've lived a promiscuous lifestyle, if you've given into homosexuality or you've believed the lie that transgenderism is your identity, or that your homosexuality is your identity. It is a lie. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves the LGBT community. But you need to repent from your mindset and your pride in thinking, but this is how I am. And I'm just going to tell you, Jesus didn't make you that way. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. James says each one sins when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. That means we can't trust our feelings and just assume because I feel a way it's good and godly. That's, that's ludicrous to a biblical Christian. I have to repent of my desires that are ungodly. I have to not lust or want to have sexual relations with women that aren't my wife. Even though I'm not, I don't have homosexual attractions, I have to, I have to deny attractions for anyone and anything other than my wife. Do you understand that? It's the same thing as someone who goes, well, I'm attracted to, okay, then you need to deny yourself and not give into that attraction because 
that is not of God, God says in his word. And knowing what I know about deliverance ministry, there is spiritual warfare involved. There are spirits of perversion and homosexuality, and that's a reality. And if you're curious about that, email me, and I can give you more info. Uh, If you want a prayer session, we can pray through that. But we need to repent, we need to confess, and we need to stay clear. And so purity is a big deal to God. Holiness is a big deal to God. If we do not honor God's design and gender, God's institution of marriage, and the sanctity of our sexuality, we become willing partners in the enemy's agenda against the very culture in which we live. We contribute to a culture of defilement, and we get desensitized. I mean, think about what was allowed by the FCC on TV and radio in the 50s or 60s. Your parents will tell you the story. Versus now. Why is that? We've been desensitized, and many of us just go right along with it. And we, our own households have been desensitized, and we let our kids engage in things that 50 years ago would have been appalling for a Christian person to let their kid watch that, watch that kind of stuff. We need to wake up. It desensitizes us from the presence of the Lord. It, it, it makes us lose our zeal for the house of God. It makes us lose our passion to want to follow Jesus and to be passionate believers of Christ. I'm going to close by reading Paul's, Paul Harvey's uh, sermon on this topic from 1965. He, he first aired this in 1965. It's from Paul Harvey, and he said, it's titled, If I Were the Devil. If I Were the Devil. He says, If I Were the Devil, If I Were the Prince of Darkness... I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies, and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families that war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to disciple emotions. Just let those run wild until before you knew it, you'd have to drug, you'd have drug sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse. 
then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbols of, an, of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take those from those who have, and I'd give to those who want until I have killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what do you bet I could get the whole, whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich? I would caution against extremes in hard work and patriotism in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's been doing. That was written in 1965. And where are we now? I know that I'm saying a lot of things tonight that you're aware of. But sermons like this are important because it's like, wake up. Because we see it so much, we go, yeah, that's just the way it is. And we get desensitized. But it should prick us, it should goad us, it should spur us on that what our church family is about, Free People Church, the passion of seeing Jesus exalted, the seeing the gospel go forth, that is really what it's all about. And I'm telling you, we're living in the last days. It's more important than ever. And Jesus is looking for a pure, spotless bride. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for our time together tonight. God, it can feel overwhelming when you consider what's going on in the world and how successful the devil can be at times. But I just thank you for that testimony in your word of revelation that even in that last generation, there is a pure spotless church that remains faithful to you. God, I pray that we could be that church in our generation, whether this is the generation that you come back, Jesus, or not. This is our generation, and it's happening in every culture, in every generation. So God, help us to be faithful. I pray that we could be bridesmaids, or the bride who has oil in her lamp, who waits on you while working for you, (laughs) that we could be the faithful stewards who give God's people their food at the proper time, that when our master returns, he can find us doing what he commissioned us to do, that he would not find us carousing and engaging with the world, having given up hope, but to know that our work in our generation is very important, that we may not be able to change a whole culture or a whole society or a whole nation, but man, we can change the lives of the people around us. We can depopulate hell and we can change the landscape of heaven. (laughs) And every person we come across is important.
And so, Jesus, I pray that you would teach us how to keep ourselves only unto you, walking in the ways of your judgments, waiting for you, how to honor marriage, keep the marriage bed pure, keep ourselves pure only for you, Jesus, and to live how you want us to live. God, help us be faithful. Help us be faithful. That's my prayer. Help us be faithful. So we thank you for this word tonight. Thank you for opening eyes and veils coming off. And thank you for sobering. It's a sobering message tonight. That's the word. It's a sobering of our mindsets to know the hour in which we live. (laughs) So thank you for sobering us up tonight, God. We need it. And we love you. And may we not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And uh, thank you. Just fill us, Holy Spirit, with power and love to change the world. In your name, amen.